When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Everything is Black and White podcast. I'm John Gibson and this is Gibbo's Corner. This is my chance to take you behind the headlines of some of the greatest Newcastle United stories. Thanks for listening and please remember to like and subscribe. Hello and welcome to the Everything is Black and White podcast. It's time for another episode of Gibbo's Corner. Joined by John Gibson who has worked for the Chronicle for nearly 60 years and today we're going to discuss the forgotten number nines, those strikers who've worn that great shirt and maybe aren't remembered as much as the likes of Alan Shearer and those who went before him. Uh, John, I mean, you covered most of these in your career writing as a yeah. journalist. Um, for you, who is the one out of everyone that you're going to mention that you think is the ultimate forgotten number nine? Well, uh, I, I think sometimes we forget about Peter With, who, because he was only here two years, uh, we were in the second division doldrums uh, while he was here, but he was quite a startling man. I mean, he won the first division title with Nottingham Forest in Cluffy before he arrived at Newcastle, spent two years here, left Farston Villa and scored the winning goal in the European Cup final Farston Villa and then went on to be capped by England. Uh, and I think he is greatly forgotten as other people have a place in history like Mirandina who was the I mean we've got a Brazilian centre forward now he was the first ever Brazilian in a hundred years to play in the football league and he come and played in the same team as Gaza at Newcastle United so there's a load of them who we just need our memory jogging that they were around. And before we dive in to the first person you're going to mention the number nine shirt comes with this pressure it comes with this expectation mm. Um, why do you think that some of these people are forgotten or aren't held as high up there in the list as the likes of, we're not going to say Shear because he's the best ever, but you know the likes of, say, Mick Quinn or, or Les Ferdinand? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I think there is the creme de la creme who uh, historically, I mean, it was one of those, Huey Gallagher, that really started the number nine legend off, if you like. There was great centre forwards before that, but Huey Gallagher really started it. Then we had people like... Uh, War Jackie, of course, Super Mac and Alan Shearer. Now, they're the creme de creme. Then there was the second tier of real quality strikers, which uh, Les Ferdinand, Andy Cole, with his goal-scoring record. And in a way, because he was a character, Mick Quinn is well-remembered. But there's others, and a few of these were good, good centre-forwards, and there's a few of them that weren't. And I'll be saying that as well. Uh, there's a few of them where the number nine shirt was just too heavy for the shoulders. But there were some that did well. But you see, if you wear the number nine in Newcastle eyes, you've got to be a war jackie, a supermarket or an Alan Shearer. And therefore, if you fall a bit short, you're not well remembered. Do you think that some of the names that you're going to mention underestimated the power 
of the number nine shirt and what it meant? Oh, I, I, th- I think in, in some cases, absolutely so. Um, in other cases, they embraced it. They knew they were never going to be an Alan Shearer. Um, but they off did the job well in a short spell for Newcastle United. But there's some where it was just too much too heavy uh, and too much responsibility and a lot of people you know didn't know that when they signed for Newcastle until the ward out on the pitch and heard the incessant talk about what number nine means then it was a heavy old shirt it does come with some expectation well we'll dive straight in with the first name John yeah Uh, I was wanting to talk about a a guy that was a good mate of mine Paul Cannell uh, a local lad uh, from up here who is still living up here, he was around the 70s. He was understudy at one time to Supermac. He was on the bench in the 76 League Cup final. Uh, a complete nutter character. He didn't walk on the wild side. He lived on the wild side. He, he, he epitomised uh, the whole... He was a local lad, good-looking local lad who decided, hey, I'm a lucky old so-and-so here, I'm really going to enjoy this. And he did enjoy it. I mean, I remember we used to have, at the time in the 70s, we used to often go down to a place called Roy's Two Rooms, which was a restaurant come nightclub just 100 yards from St James's Park on a Saturday night after a game. We'd all meet in there. I'd be down with, with some of the players. The players would change occasionally and would have another. And this day, Paul Cannell was in and he played for the first team that afternoon. And when I saw him uh, at the night time, I said, hey, Paul, well done, son. Got a goal today. Uh, good lad, like. And he said, aye. He said, but I'm still on 30 quid a week, he said. And I went, you what? What are you saying? He said, I'm still on... I might have scored a, a goal in the first division for Newcastle United, but I'm on 30 quid a week. So I, I let it be because, uh, you know, we're out socially and you don't report what is said to you privately. But I decided afterwards, the next day, to give him a bell and say, you know what you said about 30 quid a week? Is that right? And do you mind if I say so? And because... He was the sort of guy he was. He says, no, it's a, it's a fact of life. Uh, I'm on 30 quid a week. So again, we, we met after training on the Monday at the Elden Grill. A lot of the lads, Tommy Cass and a lot of the lads used to go down to the Elden Grill, after, uh, which is down by uh, Gray's Monument, after, after training. And I went in and as I was walking in, I saw a huge placard just outside the Elden Grill on which it said United start on £30 a week and I thought oh whoops a daisy this is going to perhaps go down well with the boys Um, and Paul said to me he said well well, let's come in for a drink here boys I saw this thing and I thought I wonder who that is and he said oh it dawned on me it was me Um, and the funny thing is that Newcastle United got in touch with me Straight away, there were stories in on the Monday. By the Monday night, I got a call from the club and I thought, here we go, they're going to complain. Uh, what, in fact, they said, they admitted that he was on 30 quid a week basic, but they wanted to say, oh, but he, he has appearance money and a goal-scoring money, and that puts it up. I said, but is he basically on 30 quid a week? And yes, yes he was. What came out of doing the story? He got a pay rise. So it worked for all. You mentioned there he was the understudy to the Supermac at one yeah, point. Yeah, I mean, that's a lot of pressure. Oh, massively so. Amazingly, Paul Cannell is that sort of extrovert 
that he didn't feel pressure, you know. And it's quite, he was a local lad as well. Can you imagine? A local lad wanting to make his way in the game and um, he didn't feel pressure. He, I mean, he scored 19 goals in 69 matches for Newcastle. Uh, daft as a bush. If if Bobby Robson said Gaza was daft, it's only because he never met Paul Cannell. I mean, I wrote a chapter in the Gibbo Files, which is a book I wrote from my experiences with the Chronicle Coven game, about the match that never was. And the man that was involved in that was Paul Cannell. Um, all the young players, not really so many first-teamers, but sort of the apprentices and reserves, used to go off to Benidorm in the summer all together for a jolly at the end of the season. So that they're out there... And having a little kick about in the um, with the waiters watching in the hotel just outside on the beach, and the waiter said, "You know, we'll play you uh, a, a little game for fun." And out of it all came this this sudden idea that Newcastle, why don't we play the local team, Benidorm, the local second division Spanish side? Yeah, uh, you know, we'll put a few of them together. The next thing Kinnell knows is that there's loudspeakers, cars with loudspeakers going round the resort advertising that Newcastle United were going to play Benidorm that Sunday in a friendly match, Newcastle United. Uh, and so what happened, Paul Kinnell, instead of calling it off, just took the bait and he had people out there like Alan Kennedy who went on to be a very big big player for Newcastle, Derek Craig, a reserve, David Crossan, Billy Coulson. They found Mervyn Day, the West Ham goalkeeper. They, 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 they were looking around Benidorm to see any footballers on, because that was the place to go in those days. They found Mervyn Day, they found Phil Bosma, they played for Liverpool, Ray Graydon, who played for Burnley. Put them all together, played a match. On the Sunday, there was 2,500 people in the stadium. It was not note the game, I mean, half of them couldn't stand up. They were on the hollies. They'd been drinking till about six in the morning. Um, and the funny thing is that it was picked up by the English-speaking paper out there. And I got a call from a Newcastle United fan in Benidorm saying, did you know Newcastle United had just played there? And he read the thing out to me, and I, did this, I carried the story in the Chronicle when they come home. And um, Gordon Lee had, had him in, and... They were fine, they were, the match that never was, you realise he could have got injured and all this sort of thing. And the amazing thing is, Joe Harvey, who had been their manager, he just left for Gordon Lee for the 76 Cup final. Joe Harvey, I saw Joe when he was up there, I said, Joe, did you know? He said, ah, he said, actually, he said, I was in Benidorm. Joe always went to Benidorm and so He said, I was in Benidorm. He said, I saw these these posters in, in the cars flying about saying Newcastle are playing Benidorm. On Sunday, his wife said to, to Joe, hey, what's that about, Joe? How are New, how's Newcastle playing? Ben? And Joe said, oh, don't worry about that either. We'll not bother going to the game. It'll be that daft bugger Kinnell. And it, it was it was that daft so-and-so Kinnell. When you are in a study, though, to someone like Supermac, and you might be this brilliant character that, that Paul is, mm. I mean, how, how as a manager do you replace from going from one legend like Supermac, who... The number nine shirt just was fitted for him. It was made for him. Absolutely. To someone who, no disrespect to Paul, no. is, isn't Supermark. No. The, the, the amazing thing was that um, 
it was incredibly difficult, but halfway through, or three quarters of the way through, Super Max Rain here, towards the end, what happened? Of course, the Joe Harvey, who adored Supermac and brought Supermac to Newcastle, uh, was kicked upstairs, and Gordon Lee came. And Gordon Lee made it very easy in the dressing room to, to follow on from Supermac because he wanted rid of Supermac, and he got rid of Supermac, as, as, as you well know. And that's when... Paul Cannell started playing quite regularly in, in the Newcastle side. Um, but he he was a total exception. That um, it, it didn't worry him. He was flamboyant. He, I mean, he was involved in everything. One of the other, one of the tales he always told, which was quite funny, he was heavily involved in Frank Clark's testimonial, organising Frank Clark's testimonial at Newcastle on the player committee. And... Um, Clark, he used to always think of himself as a little bit of a rock and roller, you know. He, he was a good guitarist and he wanted to sing. And in fact, the incredible thing is now, retired, living in Nottingham in his 70s, I guess, he's formed a rock and roll band in the play around the clubs in Nottingham now, Funky Clark. But when he was having his testimonial up here, um, Paul Cannell had a mobile disco. Can you imagine a Newcastle player today having a mobile disco which you take around social clubs and, and play at gigs? He did that. He's playing centre-forward for Newcastle on the Saturday and on the Monday he's got a mobile disco in a social club in Newcastle. So he decided to put a band together, the Frank Clark Band, which would play eight or ten gigs around the area um, as part of the testimonial programme. And they rehearsed at the Newton Park Hotel, which was Paul Cannell's local, and um, they went along this day to rehearse and there was a band on in the room rehearsing before them and the band went over time. So Cannell went to the, the manager of the Newton Park and said, look, get these bums off, like, you know, these, these nondescripts off because we want to rehearse the Frank Clark band for the testimonial gig. And um, the, the so-and-sos that they wanted to get rid of was a local band called Last Exit and the lead singer was a bloke called Gordon Sumner, who just happened to become Sting. And he, he was thrown off the, the, the pub in Heaton so that the Frank Clark band could sing Peggy Sue, which was the, 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 the one song that uh, was loved by Frank. And that's the sort of wacky world Newcastle and Paul existed in in the 70s. On to another great character then. We have Albert Bennett... Another oh, yes. good friend of yours, another yeah. one that, you know, just seemed to love his time here at Newcastle. Oh, well, he was here 65 to 69, 90 appearances, 23 goals, uh, played for the England under-23s, as it was then. Would have had a terrific career, but he had ankle trouble. He, he was plagued by injuries and in fact would have probably been in the first cup side but for injuries him and Davies were the Win Davies were the, the strike force that got Newcastle qualified for Europe but he was injured by that happened Pop got the place alongside Davies and the rest is was literally history but um he, he was nicknamed Arkel, which was the great horse at that time Albert Bennett because uh, Arkel had is. Uh, the ankles were white. He had white. Uh, and, of course, Bennett always played with his ankles taped, which means they were white. Uh, if they took the tape off, he would have disintegrated on the spot. It, it, the tape held them together. Um, 
and he, he was a he was a complete one-off. Went and played at Blackpool once, and he, we stayed overnight. And we went. There was a fella called Colin Tiny Prince who used to be uh, on the one o'clock show at Times Television in Newcastle, uh, and he opened a nightclub in Blackpool, and we went along to see him. Uh, and we're standing at the back, having a few beers, waiting for Colin to come on and entertain us. And I looked down, there was this little pool, and I said to Albert, standing next to me, I said, look, baby alligators in there. And he had a look in, he said, don't be so daft. He said, they're, they're false, man. Uh, you know, they're just, they're, they're plastic. I said, they're not. They're alligators, I'm telling you. So the next thing I know while I'm watching, he rolls his trouser leg up, cocks his foot over the, over the railings where, these, where the water is, where the alligator's in, and bashes the alligator with the heel of his shoe right across its snout to see if there was any reaction to say to me, well, look, there you are, I told you it was plastic. Only there were real, and its tail came up, and all the water came lashing out the pool, drenched all the, the young girls that were sitting just in front of us, all with beehive hairstyles, which was the style of the day. And I think we would have been banned from the club, but Colin intervened because he realised John Newcastle had a place. Um, that was Albert. He was just a, a good, good, fun guy. Uh, my drinking mate, I hastened to add drinking at the right time of the week, not the wrong time of the week. And I think I've told the tale before about when I stayed at his house after a good old session rather than drive home. Slept in the same bed, his missus was away visiting mum. And it was like Morkman Wise sleeping in the same bed. Uh, phone rang the next morning. I heard it put my head under the blankets, didn't want anything to do. I heard Albert and, and then I heard him say, yes gaffer. And I thought, whoop, whoop, what this is about? Was Joe Harvey on the phone saying, why aren't you in the training? It was half past ten. Now, Albert wasn't the quickest thinker normally, but he was when he was in a mess. And he said immediately, uh, oh, I've got a bit of a virus gaffer. Um, I'm not feeling too well. I thought I don't want to give it to the rest of the lads, so I would take the day off. And Joe evidently said to him, good lad, you're quite right. We don't want it spreading throughout the team. Yeah, okay, you... Now, and just come in tomorrow, stay in bed today, come in tomorrow and everything will be okay. And Albert said, yeah, we'll do, Gaffer. And he was just going to hang up and uh, Joe said, oh, but wait a minute, he said. Uh, Whatever you do, Albert, he says, say now to the press. The only difficulty was the press was lying beside Albert, Albert in bed at the, at the same time. And he was one of the most lovable guys and a good, good, good player. Um Shame with his injuries. He went on and he, he was a, a warder in a prison after that. And I often said, I knew he would end up in jail, but I didn't think it would be as a warder. What kind of player was he like? What was his attributes? His attributes were uh, he could find space. He was very crafty. He could find space in, in the penalty area. Uh, worked off his centre forward. He, he, while he did play number nine on, on occasions, his best days were working off Big Win Davies. Um, and he, he was quick, he was clever at finding space. Um, and he looked as if he was going to have a huge career in front of him, but he, he just became so injury-prone that he, he, he just didn't play the number of games he ought to have played. And, of course, he suffered because Pop Robson was coming through like an express train and he established himself at the side of Wynne Davies and that was Albert transferred. Now, if my research is correct, 
uh, Albert was rugby tackled by Emlyn Hughes, which gave way to Emlyn Hughes' nickname, the Crazy Horse. Yeah. During the game. Yeah, that that's absolutely right. He was. He was. He was literally uh, taken round the waist, and it was it was one of the quotes from Albert after the game when he was asked about it because he had a running style, Emlyn Hughes, where he lifted his legs up high and everything. He looked like a you know a young horse in cantering in a field. And he asked about the tackle. He said, ah, he was like a crazy horse, uh, Hughes. He's like a crazy horse. And so it just stuck. It was one of those things, I think, was said on television as well as to the press. And the nickname was there forever. A crazy horse was was Emlyn Hughes from then onwards. Now, fast forward in quite a few years, we're going to get to the first Brazilian. Mm. Um, and a man who wasn't here that long... Maybe he was very talented, but wasn't the most prolific. And yet, no. you ask people about him, um, and you know they, they do remember him fondly. Well, uh, he, he was an amazing character. It's Mirandina we're talking about, of course. It was the first Brazilian to play in the football league in its hundred-year history. Now we have an awful lot of Brazilians who've played in the football league since, and we've, as I said, we've actually got one playing in the number nine shirt now for Newcastle United. But Mirandina, it was way back in 1988, and it was quite exceptional. Well, it was unique because we'd never had it before. And what was also quite exceptional was the way he came to English football or came to Newcastle United because it was through a genuine number nine legend, Malcolm MacDonald, that got... Mirandina to Newcastle and you might say how did that happen because at the time Malcolm wasn't in the game Malcolm had been a player he'd been manager at Fulham very successfully but was out of the game at this stage and he had a pub in Worthing on the south coast and he he renamed it Far Post because that's where he made his living at the Far Post heading in balls for Newcastle United and there was a guy called Don Packham who knew that Supermac had this pub and he lived in the area and he walked into the pub this day, this lunchtime, ordered a pint and and while talking with Malcolm said that a pal of his in Brazil knew a lot of Palmeiras players who wished to come and play in Europe, which all the Brazilians did, of course, and still do because that's where the money is, not back home. Uh, and could Malcolm help with all his contacts in the game? Uh, the one that particularly interested Malcolm, as an ex-number nine himself, was the number nine of Palmeiras, which was Mirandina. Interested him because he's number nine, which is easier to find a club for number nine. He was a Brazilian international and he was blisteringly quick, which is what Malcolm MacDonald was, of course. Uh, Malcolm therefore became the agent of Mirandina. He initially didn't try to sell him to Newcastle, he tried to sell him to Graeme Souness, who was a Glasgow Rangers manager at the time. And, of course, Graeme was doing, he was signing Catholics to play for Rangers, and he, he took England internationals, established internationals, up to play for Rangers. He was killing all boundaries, and he thought a number nine, Brazilian number nine, would appeal to Graeme. It wasn't going to happen, I don't think he needed a centre-forward, etc., etc. So he thought he was old mate at Newcastle, Willie McFall, and he gave Willie a ring, and Willie was interested. Um, 
I mean, it was terrific for me because Malcolm had been a very close friend of mine from his playing days at Newcastle, and he tipped me off that um, he was going to do this deal with Newcastle United for Brazilian centre-forward. I was as cynical as it's possible to be when I first heard it. You know, oh yeah, yeah, Malcolm McDonald's going to give Newcastle Brazil centre-forward coming from Brazil and the deal's going to go through, yon, yon, yeah, little bit of taken with a pinch of salt. Carried the story uh, and then as it developed and he kept in touch and it took a while because you've got work permits, etc., etc. the story got stronger and stronger and it actually came off and was quite a sensation. So it was a good scoop for me and for the Chronicle. And because I had the inside line all the way, I actually flew down to Heathrow to meet Mirandina, who would come from Rio de Janeiro via Paris and was flying from Paris into Heathrow to meet Malcolm MacDonald and Willie McFall and come up to Newcastle. I flew down to Heathrow to get the first interview with Mirror and to do the story for the Chronicle. Uh, he came up here, stayed overnight in the city centre hotel, which had been tipped off, Newcastle's new signing, who was going to make world headlines because he's the first Brazilian over here, and they had the Brazilian flag up on the flagpole next to the Union Jack outside the city centre hotel. And there he was. Um, and quite an incredible character. Uh, Got to be said, as quick as anything I've seen, uh, as quick as Malcolm McDonald, as quick as War Jackie, what he wasn't, he didn't have a touch. And a Brazilian without a touch was almost unheard of, but he didn't have a touch. Uh, um, he was just blisteringly quick and he knew where the goal was, but he, his touch was, wasn't good at all. Um, and he played in the same side as Paul Gascoigne, of course. Struck up a, a really good friendship. Just uh... He did. I mean, he did very much. It, it started off with, with a, a love-hate thing because, I mean, I reckon that Newcastle ought to have played with two footballs when they were on the side, one for Mundina and one for Gaza, because they wouldn't... They both swore early on, early on, to look at, they both swore that they wouldn't pass, the other wouldn't pass to him, because he, he didn't get enough of the ball. And amazingly, I'm saying amazingly, because Mundina couldn't speak a word of English, <laughs> uh, but they, and I did a, a talk in at Pontine Social Club, with Gaza, who then was the young superstar, he wasn't what he became, he was the young superstar, and Mirandina, who was the sensational signing. Uh, and I thought it was very brave of me because neither of them could speak English. Mirandina couldn't and neither could Gascoigne, he could just speak Geordie. So you can imagine having the two of them on stage together uh, with Mirror Hard. Of course, Mirror, he packed the place out. He didn't have to say anything at all, Mirror, because he was Newcastle's new centre forward that played for Brazil. They were crawling to get into the place like sardines. And uh, Mirror called Gaza the crazy one. Paul flashed back and said he had a goldfish. His goldfish looked like Mirror when it had its mouth open. And Mirror said, I've got a dog, it's crazy as well, and I, that's why I call it Gaza. Um, and the funny thing is, Gaza being Gaza, he sort of he was teaching them English and he used to go down to the ship, which was a nightclub on the time there. And Gaza used to say, 
here's a few words that'll help you, Miller. And of course, he told them all the naughty words, didn't he? So that when when any girls were on the ship, he would say something that was totally inappropriate and not realise what he was saying, and Gascoigne would fall about laughing. Uh, but I mean, they did, they did become very very good pals. Just read that that Gaza bought Merdina's daughter a dog. So there we have it. But <laughs> on the pressure of the number nine ship, because. You know, it's easy for a footballer, especially coming from a foreign country, to say, yes, I understand about Newcastle United. Mm. Yes, I understand um, about the number nine shirt. Do you think Muradina really knew? How, do you think Supermark had, had laid it in him and said, look, you're not just moving to a club, you're moving to, <laughs> you know, there's pressure there and there's pressure with this shirt? No, I don't think that uh, Supermark sold it like that because he mightn't have got the deal. <laughs> he mightn't have signed for Newcastle. He told them what a great club Newcastle were and that he used to play for Newcastle and that they had the best fans in the world. But he significantly didn't tell him that the number nine shirt was a tad heavy. And I don't think Mary coming from... You've got to remember that he was actually coming from Brazil. He hadn't been playing in Europe like uh, like Joe Linton uh, and therefore was acclimatised into the European game and no, known clubs. He was coming from the other side of the world and he knew very, very little at all about Newcastle United. And in a way, it worked for him because he didn't realise... How, how heavy the shirt would be. And because he was Brazilian and because he was quick, he excited the fans and he had the fans on the side. He didn't really have to win them over. And he scored a lot of goals to start with. But he, uh, I mean, and he came over just a few years back and I, I was up here with him and it was lovely, lovely to see him again. And he, he remembers the whole of his career built around Newcastle United, but he wasn't yet typical Brazilian by any means. He scored against Liverpool, which is well remembered. Yep. It was a time though as well when McFall was under a lot of pressure. I think yep. it was at that Liverpool game as well. There was talk about him maybe getting the boot and and well a, we won we won at Liverpool and he scored the winning goal Miller. and he runs over to um, McFall and gives him a big hug. Unfortunately, the next game we played was Coventry up here and we lost. And uh, Willie McFall got the sack. Um, amazing that uh, one, you know, we often talk about Berkey getting the sack at Newcastle X number of games after beating Sunderland. Uh, Steve Bruce's Sunderland up here, five. Uh, and, and that did happen. But one game after beating Liverpool at Anfield, uh, Willie McFall got the sack. And he, he had been at the club 22 years he had arrived as a player. Uh, once he stopped playing, he was reserve team coach, first team coach, then got the manager's job. And when he got the manager's job, and he'd been at the club about 20 years, I phoned him up on the morning he got the manager's job and said, uh, Hi, Willie, how are you, mate? Congratulations, you're now one day off the sack. And he said, Thanks very much, Gibbo. I said, He had a job for life as a reserve team coach once you become the first team coach you're on the countdown to the sack every manager is it even happened to Cluffy at Leeds and um, it was amazing that Mirror scored the winner uh, to cement his future which lasted all for one more game and he got the sack just finally on Meridina we're not doubting his talent as a player but was he more brought in because he had this tag of the first Brazilian and they thought right we can maybe appease the fans a little bit. There was a bit oh, of discontent. Was that more you, the reason? Yes, yes. I think without a shadow of doubt, uh, you were looking for a centre forward. And when you think of the PR side of it, he's going to be the first Brazilian to play in the Football League in 100 years. 
he is a Brazilian who remember in Pele and all the great Brazilians was a wonderful thing to be. He was blisteringly quick and he was brought to the club by Superman. I mean, the publicity alone was was enormous and was terrific. And Newcastle United at that time were about pleasing the fans. That's very hard to understand today because there isn't too much of that goes on. But uh, yes, uh, it was a PR exercise that worked fleetingly um, because of the publicity and the fact that he, he, he did initially score a lot of goals but he, he tapered off and was sold eventually went back to Palmeiras and that, that was it. We hope you've enjoyed this episode so far. It's sponsored by Hodgson Motor Group, the Northeast number one family-owned Toyota, Mazda and Suzuki dealership group. Please remember to like and subscribe to the podcast through wherever you get your podcasts from. Well, from one man who didn't have a touch to another... Um, and we're going to go with another number nine who had a very decent goal scoring record. But I have heard you describe him in, in similar fashion to Meridian, and that's uh, Verardi. Um, Verardi, yeah. Again, someone who knew where the goal was, but the touch was maybe lacking in that. Yeah, yeah. Maybe accelerated. Yeah. Very, very exit. quick, very, very quick. Scored a pile of goals in the second division, Ray Verardi for Newcastle. Um, goal scoring record was excellent. And. I think the fans were happy with him. He loved it up here. But Newcastle signed Kevin Keegan. And Kevin Keegan played a season with Verardi and told Arthur Cox, look, this partnership isn't going to work. I've got nothing against Ray as a person. He's got a decent goal scoring record. But he wants it played over the top, use his blistering speed. He'll miss as many as he scores. blah de blah Keegan, being the ultimate footballer, wanted to play quick into passing football, ball to feet, get it back, etc., etc. So he said, we need to replace Verardi. And they did, and they replaced him with Peter Beardsley. Uh, so it wasn't a bad deal, although, although uh, I do remember Keegan telling me at the time, uh, he said, I'm in the canteen, and this little kid walks in, and... Arthur Cox says, this is the fella that's going to make all your goals, Kevin, and is going to score for you yourself. This is uh, Peter Beersy. And he said, I'd never heard of him, had no idea who he was, and just saw that he was dead small and thought, oh, dear me, what have I got here? And then, of course, they had a genius. And, of course, Keegan loved Beardsley so much that when he became manager, he brought Beardsley back to Newcastle. But he wanted people that could play up front, which was Beardsley and Waddle with him. When you think of that four, three forwards, there wasn't a natural centre forward there at all. They didn't play with a centre forward, they intertwined. Because Keegan played with a seven because that was his magic shirt, like we had number nines. But he played through the middle with one side of model and one side of Beardsley and it worked an absolute treat but Verardi suffered because of the style Newcastle had to play to get the best out of Kevin Keegan He was devastated to leave as well wasn't he? Oh, I mean he phoned me up at the time he heard and he was in absolute tears he was in tears and said Gibbo I don't know what I've done wrong my goal scoring record's terrific I love it up here I've got a great relationship with the fans what the heck's it all about and um 
I just had to say, as gently as I could, is that Newcastle were going through revolution and uh, in the way they played, in the style of football they played, and really it wasn't about the ball over the top hitting the channels and using his speed anymore. It was ball to feet and quick interpassing. And uh, I think Ray realised, I saw Ray a lot of years later, and he was an agent, and he realised that Keegan was going to rule the roost at Newcastle and we were going to have to play the Keegan way. And when you're replaced, as I, I said to him years later, mate, if you're replaced with a dummy out of uh, the window at um, John Lewis's, then it's a pretty rough life. But when you're replaced by Peter Beardsley, uh, it takes somebody of that quality to replace you. It's a backhand compliment. Most certainly. Uh, just before we get on to our next name, just a quick reminder that our live event is happening on the 11th of December. Uh, tickets are selling really well. There's only a few left. John will be uh, in the interval with ex-Newcastle United scout Paul Montgomery. He's the man who brought Pav Cernicek to the club. Our writers here at the Chronicle will be on the panel either side of that, talking about transfers, takeovers, Steve Bruce, what have you. Um, and it's just going to be a wonderful night raising money for the NUFC fans food bank. You can head over to Chronicle Live to get all the details and we hope to see you there. Uh, John, on to the next one then. Billy mm. Whitehurst. Yeah. A man who you really wouldn't mess with. Oh, oh, oh. I mean, Billy, uh, he made Desperate Dan look uh, like Julian Cleary. Uh, he, he was absolutely frightening. He's the most feared centre-forward in the country. I'm not talking about ability, Although, believe you me, he had more ability than people realise. I'm talking about people being terrified, literally, physically, of him. He could bend Diane Gerdes with his teeth. He was fearsome. He was built like a brick outhouse. Uh, he had incredible build on him. He wasn't going to be quick with that build, but he, he lived off his muscle and the fear that he caused in, in defences. And typical of that fear was that I remember Glenn Roder telling me a story uh, who was a, a very decent centre-half and Newcastle United skipper, as, as you knew. Glenn used to go to the dogs, the greyhounds at Bruff Park, with Billy on a night time and they would have a, a, a gamble in, in Natter. Now, very shortly after we sold Billy to Oxford, we sold him to Oxford, Newcastle were playing Oxford away within weeks of the deal. And Glenn said to me, he said, hey, Gibbo, he said, I'm going to take no chances down there. He said, because Billy, once Billy's not on my side, he's on the other side, he'll just hammer me. He won't take prisoners. He'll just have me for breakfast. He said, so the whole time during the game, Glenn talked to Billy about Bruff Park. Hey, uh, Billy, we've missed you at Bruff Park, son. You know that dog that you won at 6-1? to one? Well, the one the other day I was on it. Uh, it comes second. So the whole game he's talking to Billy about Bruff Park. The other centre-half that played with Glenn was Peter Jackson, uh, who was a bit of a, a tough guy. Uh, didn't know Billy well, didn't talk to him about Bruff Park, and as a consequence, got his nose smashed all over his face by Billy's elbow. Billy decided that when he was going for balls in the air, Jacko was going to get it, because Glenn was OK, he was his mate from Bruff Park. And um, uh, Billy told me afterwards, I said, what was all that about Billy? He said, oh, we used to have a few battles when 
Jacko was at Bradford, he said, and he, he fancied himself as a bit of a, a hard man, but he wasn't in my league, he said. So uh, I just splattered him and lesson was lesson learned. Um, and Billy literally terrified. Uh, he terrified me. I used to go out drinking with him in town when he was at Newcastle. Uh, and that was a savage, uh, you know, you had to cancel the next day if you went out with Billy because you needed the next day to recover. And uh, I always remember him phoning me up uh, a little while later, and he said, Gibbo, he said, good news, I'm coming back to the northeast. I'm signing for Sunderland, and my heart sank, because I knew what that meant. It meant several more sessions in town and nights on, on the boat, on the nightclub. But, um, I mean, on a much more serious note, Billy Whitehurst, when he was centre-forward for Newcastle, virtually finished the career of Paul Bracewell. Um, he certainly finished the England career of Paul Bracewell. Uh, we played Everton where Brace was at St James's Park on New Year's Day 1986. And um, Whitehurst hit Bracewell with the most savage of tackles, uh, which completely rearranged his ankle. Uh, and Bracewell didn't play again for almost two years and there was serious talk that he wouldn't play again at all. Now, normally, Billy accepted it was his fault when he did something with GBH on a football field, but he, for some reason he never accepted it with Brace and, and, and said he'd just met him head on and etc., uh, etc. Et he wouldn't have it. I don't think there was a lot of love lost. And um, that was emphasised later on when... Um, Billy told me a tale about when he, he met up with, with Brace again. Um, when Brace was assistant manager at Sunderland, Sunderland were playing Sheffield United at Walker Park, and Billy, Big Billy, having played for both Sunderland and Sheffield United, went up to the game. Uh, he, he, in his words, he said, I'd had a few drinks, he said. Sunderland lost 4-1. I was half cut after the game. So he said, I went into the Sunderland dressing room he said, and as I opened the door and charged into the dressing room, he was taking his clothes off. As he was as he was walking into the dressing room, he was shedding all his clothes, and he jumped in the bath, which was just through from the dressing room. Jumped in the bath, all the players were in. He said, and Brace was sitting at the opposite end of the bath. He said he took one look at, at Billy, tanked up and jumping in the bath, leapt out and disappeared and was never seen again for the rest of the night. He wasn't having anything about Billy Whitehurst being anywhere near him. And Whitehurst arrived, if I'm not mistaken, as a record signing. Yeah. Um, but didn't score in his first 11 appearances. Uh, I think he only got some like seven goals and then it didn't end all that well between him and the fans. And just one of those that you just, you just write off and you just it, it just yeah. wasn't the right time, wasn't the right player? No, well, he wasn't the right player. He was what Newcastle needed at the time. But, I mean, if I was honest about Billy, he, he was a second division, third division centre-forward. Very effective, very physical, knocked round centre-halves who were terrified him. So if you played alongside him, you could pick up a lot of pieces off the carnage that Billy caused. But he was one-paced, good in the air, one-paced, but no delicate touch, a better touch than a lot of people give him credit for. But he... He wasn't going to be a big star at a place like Newcastle United. He was always going to earn a very good 
living, but he was a lower league centre forward in my eyes. Um, and I'm only saying that because he's not in the building. If he was in the building, I would definitely not say that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who, who did he come in and replace at that time? He comes in mid eighties. Is it George Riley? Was it Waddle? Was it who had the number nine? I'm trying, I'm trying to, to think off the top, man. I can't I'm trying to think of the the time he came to play for Newcastle. Um, it. Because you at that time was, I mean, you're going through the wilderness a little bit, but was the number nine, did the number nine carry as much? Um, I, I don't think it, it did because it was a, a dormant period, you know? I mean, there was periods in between, in between um, War Jackie and Super Mac and then uh, Super Mac to Shearer. Uh, where it goes and you know you're not going to have that sort of number nine because the club's going through a period where you're not going to be signing the the players like Alan Shearer unless you were lucky enough to have a kid on your books that they've become that and so we were going through a dark period and really we needed some muscle um, up there uh, that was going to frighten and he was short term and, and a lot of his career he was short term wherever he went because he was a quick fix was Billy if you were if a club was in trouble you sent for Billy Whitehurst and he'd get you out of trouble and then move on well, I've got it here if transfer market is correct and um, it was George Riley who was number nine prior to that who was um, signed by um, Jack Charlton of course Uh that's when he got two hammer throwers up front. He, he he had Waddle, he inherited Waddle and Beardsley, two of the great, great forward runners at Newcastle and ended up playing them something like outside right and outside left so he could play two hammer throwers through the middle with George Riley and Tony Cunningham because Jack's style was um, getting the ball up to your centre forward as quick as possible and picking up the bits off him. And it was very effective with the Republic of Ireland, etc., etc., but wasn't going to be uh, particularly conducive to the Newcastle United crowd who didn't like that sort of I was going to say a short contrast to what went before, um, like you say, to bruises up front in many ways. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, Newcastle went through a period um, and that was the period when having had a, a threesome that won promotion of Keegan, Waddle and Beardsley, we went quickly under Jack to Tony Cunningham and George Riley and then moved on from that to uh, Billy Whitehurst. So we went physical and direct, having been um, artists before that. And just reading a story there, sadly, George Riley has got early onset dementia. Yes. Which is a yeah, I know he has. I know he has, bless him. Um, again, a lot of people may put that down to his greatest asset was in the air, of course, uh, getting the ball in the air. And a lot of people nowadays are, are associating that with uh, dementia. Of course, Alan Shearer has done the test, hasn't he? He did a booty documentary and yeah, he did calling very, for more. Very, very much so. And it was, it was Jeff Astle, yes, uh, his, his uh, widow, they um, started heightening the, the fact that that was a problem. And in a way, you wonder about. John Tudor, bless him, because he's in the he's in the early stages, and he was one of the greatest headers in the world. But mm. uh, for all I know, I'm two minutes off Alzheimer's myself, and I've never had a ball in my life. So uh, it, it it's not just all about that, but you can see 
the logic in thinking, especially in the old days when the balls were really heavy. Yes, so we wish John and George all the best. Oh, absolutely, uh, because great guys, great. Uh, but in any case, you don't wish that on anybody. John Tudor's wonderful, wonderful man, uh, still loves to come over here. Um, and he's got his warm memories and the lovely thing when he comes here Newcastle fans are all over him and if you see the joy on his face with that it's worth it on to Ron McGarry now someone I've met and we've got a podcast yeah. and where I spoke to, to Ron and we could have spoken all day the stories he oh. told he's, he's a comedian I mean the way you introduced him to me was if he wasn't a footballer he would have been a comedian absolutely um, right Absolutely right. And the, the thing that stood out for me with Ron um, was actually he was a very good striker, but it was the story in which he came to Newcastle and took the number nine shirt the way Joe Harvey, you know, came from once, didn't get him, then went back, and, and that, that working relationship he had with Joe. It was um, Joe. He was one of Joe's boys. Yeah. There's no question about that. I, I mean, it was a, a a real. I mean, Joe. Uh, Brought him to Newcastle, having had him originally, and then he'd flogged him from Workington, where Joe was, when working were football league site, non-league now, but were football league site. He had to flog him to Bolton when he was at Workington to satisfy the bank manager who was getting a bit fidgety. Then he brought him to Newcastle, and Joe told a story about one. He said he was actually square bashing in the army when Joe manager working first saw him. Uh, and invited him to play as an amateur for working. And uh, he scored goals because that's what he did. He was a bit of a Billy Whitehurst type of, of player. You know, big, strong size, uh, held players off, knew where the net was. Not quick. He was pretty well a, a Billy Whitehurst type of player. But he was in the army, scored a few goals for working and then went missing this, this weekend. And Joe thought, where the heck? Is this guy? It made a few inquiries. Turned out that he was playing rugby league uh, in the working area because there was better expenses uh, than the, than he got from the football club. So Joe immediately signed him as a full time pro on the spot to stop him becoming a rugby league uh, because he would have been a success at that as well. I mean, he was very streetwise. Was one tough is is granite. But at a heart of gold, uh, and I mean, he, he had a tongue as sharp as Bob Hope's. I mean, he told as many jokes. Um, and Harvey used to often say, you know, that that was one of his great advent- advantages as a centre-forward, uh, which sounds crazy saying, what, he, he was a bit of a comedian. But he was great in the dressing room and for team morale and for bonding, uh, he was first class. And you speak to him about the privilege of wearing that number nine shirt, and he, you know, he says it's arguably the greatest thing that's ever happened to him because he Absolutely came from a town correct. where nothing happened, and he's suddenly the number nine in Newcastle United. He's the top scorer as they get promoted. Um, you know, and he, and he is adored by the fans. And Absolutely. Absolutely. It, um, and, and he was the top scorer in the season. Joe built three sides, uh, Joe Harvey, and the first side he built was the promotion side of the mid-60s before he built the first cup winners and then the 74 FA Cup final side. And McGarry was the top scorer in that promotion side of the mid-60s. Um, and that's the job he did for Newcastle, which was exceptional. And talking about how he he had this ability to, to 
Bond people. There was a famous story when he played he played at Coventry. I mean, Newcastle were getting promoted, so they were winning most of the time. Um, but this day at Coventry, they were 4-1 down at half-time, which was unheard of for Newcastle at that time. And as a result, when they trooped in the dressing room, there was a lot of dejected players because they weren't used to this and there was three precious points going to go up the spout and Stan Anderson who was a skipper and a wonderful 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 player but took life very seriously he, he, he was a serious sort of guy slumped in the seat next to McGarry in the dressing room at half time and, and uh, Ron had a look at him and he said uh, he, he just patted him on the knee and he said never mind pal, pal. we're bound to get a draw the wind's behind us in the second half. And, and you know, the lad smiled. There was a bit of a guffer. The ice was broken. And Joe was able to get into them and give them a pep talk, etc., etc. And it was that ability. He was loved by everybody. And it was that ability to be the, the big extrovert uh, in the dressing room that was so loved by his teammates. Of course, has a nickname. Gashim. Yep. Cassius, which was after Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali. Um, because uh, famously, that's what he said to centre half. It was going to uh, cut him up. So I'll take you in the third, uh, which was which was typical. And he, he had a calling card, which was put out there with, um, with Ron McGarry on, have goals, will travel. Uh, I've actually got one of those cards when I went out, went to speak yeah, to him last year. Yeah, he handed yeah, me one. Yeah, and, and you uh, went off and played in Australia. Went off, played for for Barrow, and said to me, "Well, you know me, Gibbo. I've always wanted to be a Barrow boy." He said, and he went off and played for Barrow, and he was, he came back to live in the northeast. Still lives in the northeast now. Still, just tells jokes, rat a tat, like Bob Hope. Just one liners, one liners, one liners, and. Um, a terrific man who made the most of his talent and who was actually a bit like Mick Quinn and other players is remembered with great fondness as much for being a character as for being a top, top goal scorer. The ironic thing is he told the story about how in the end he was the one, he was the bookmaker who would be putting on Mick Quinn's yep. bets for him. So it's a full circle. Um, you can head over to our podcast channel where you can find that podcast. It really is um, a funny one. It's an hour of, like Gibbo says, just... Ron cracking jokes and, and, and remembering his time at Newcastle fondly speaks about Joe Harvey, which is nice, and of course, John. Um, but just on that, finally on, Ron, obviously he'd scored so many goals, helped Newcastle get promoted, and then it comes to, I think it's the season before the Fairs Cup, and he's booted out, he's gone. Yeah. Justified? It's a ruthless old game. Uh, of that, there's no question, but... Teams must always improve. The secret is, if they improve, it's justified. You know, uh, if Newcastle, if Kevin Keegan gets rid of Andy Cole, who has just scored 40-odd goals for Newcastle, but he then signs Les Ferdinand and Alan Shearer, yes, selling Cole is justified. If Newcastle get rid of Ray Verardi, but replace him with Peter Beardsley, Yes, it's justified. And if one goes just before the Fairs Cup and you end up with Wynn Davies and Pop Robson, you can't say that they haven't moved a step in the right direction and not in the wrong direction. Life is tough. Unless you're Pele, unless you're Messi or Ronaldo, there's always somebody better than you. 
Indeed, indeed. Um, we're on to our final uh, three names. Well, mm. two who wore the number nine shirt. We are going to mention one who didn't, and for good reason didn't, but nevertheless, a striker we, we always love to mention in these podcasts. But we're going to start with Peter White. Peter uh, With. Peter With, sorry. Peter yeah. With, that's me, can't read my writing. Peter With, sorry. Um, well, he was quite sensational. Um, he came to us at a low ebb. Um, it's got to be a low ebb because he was signed by Bill McGarry. And that was a low ebb at Newcastle when Bill was manager, believe you me. Uh, amazing man. He, he, he'd been a journeyman centre forward, had eight clubs home and abroad before Cluffy turned him into an absolute superstar at Nottingham Forest. Um, uh, he was Forest top scorer in 1977-78 when they won the first division championship and the League Cup but he fell out with Cluffy over his contract and Newcastle managed to nick him for £250,000 he only stayed for two years here but if you think about it he started with Nottingham Forest Clough winning the first division championship in the League Cup had two years in the second division with us and then left for Aston Villa, where he won the title again and scored the winning goal in the European Cup final and finally was capped by England. So we were the, the meat in the middle of a wonderful sandwich where he'd won the title with Forrest and then he won the title with uh, Aston Villa and scored the winning goal in the European Cup, played for us in the two years in between. And was it was a terrific centre-forward, little and large partnership we had, um, because he was the large, obviously the centre forward, and the little guy who played at his shoulder was called Alan Shoulder, who was a pitman from Blythe Spartans, who who had, had a great FA Cup run, uh, and I knew both the lads well. I used to knock about in in town with with Withy, and Alan Shoulder became my reserve team coach when I uh, when I was chairman at Gateshead. Um, and they were a terrific partnership for Newcastle. In 78-79, Peter With was Newcastle's top scorer with 14 league goals. And the next season, 79-80, Shoulder was our top scorer with 20. Um, didn't get promoted despite all those goals from those two boys because the rest of the team was distinctly average. But he, he escaped from us with freedom of contract. And I think because we hadn't gone up he was too great a talent to continue to play in the second tier of English football. And that was proved by the fact that he went to Villa and did everything that he did Villa. But he was a, a great lad. He was an honest lad. And he was a lad that made the most, the utmost of his ability. I always said Frank Clark did that in his career. And so did Peter With, who had gone from being a journeyman to everything he did with Nottingham Forest and Aston Villa with us two years in between. But a significant player in our history and a significant number nine for Newcastle. And what was his greatest attribute? Because you don't get into that Nottingham Forest side without having something no. about it and you don't get into that Villa side. No, no. Uh, he was a, a typical line leader. He led the line properly. He was physical. He could move. He was terrific in the air. He was tall. People could play off him. He, I would love Joe Linton to spend a week just looking at Peter With's um, uh, old videos because Peter With has a Joe Linton build, uh, not a Shearer build, or he, he's like Joe Linton, but he played the way we want 
Joe Linton to play. Uh, he had an awful lot of attributes and I was staggered when we got him. We got him because we're a big city club for to leave Forrest and Cluffy to come to us. But then again, when we didn't get promotion in his two seasons here, he was going to be far too good to stick around. Who is next on your list? Now, the, the guy you've never heard of. I was going to say, I'm not even going to try and pronounce his name because, again, I can't read my writing, but you did tell me and yep. I just said who? A lad called Mike Larnock. And the reason I've included him is if we talk about the legend of number nines at Newcastle United, I think it's only appropriate to mention somebody that was not only not a legend, but did play at number nine, but was probably as average as I've ever seen in a Newcastle number nine shirt. Uh, he was signed by Bill McGarry, uh, along with Mark McGee, two Scottish uh, strikers, £250,000, and Bill had never seen either of them play. Um, I only know that because I can't believe Newcastle would sign Mike Larnick until I was told, well, the manager hadn't seen him play. Uh, McGee, who was signed along with him, was a marvellous player. Um, he played for Newcastle twice, from 77 to 79, came back in 89 to 91. The second time UCA partnered Mick Quinn in the side that um, ought to have got promoted but lost the playoffs with Sunderland. Uh, but McGee was a, a marvellous player. Uh, he, he went in between his two spells in Newcastle. He joined Aberdeen, where he was Alex Ferguson's first major signing, and they went on to win the European Cup Winners' Cup in 1983 and three Scottish titles. He then played for Kevin Keegan's old club, Hamburg, in, in Germany, and he played with Celtic, where he did the League and Cup double in the centenary season. Now, I suggest if you played for... Ferguson's Aberdeen that won a European trophy. If you played for Hamburg and if you played for Glasgow Celtic, you weren't a bad player. And McGee was a wonderful, wonderful player. And he was a terrific partner with Quinn because Quinn had the, the, the muscle and the ability to sniff out off chances. And McGee was a silky type player. Then there was Larnock, who Newcastle signed from Clyde Bank. He's recorded Newcastle, has played 13 games, scored no goals, which for a number nine is quite an exceptional record in Newcastle, no goals. Um, and I actually saw him score a goal, which was quite a unique thing, uh, because I was in a reserve match at St James's Park, where the reserves played in those days. And he got a ball played through to him. He was playing centre-forward, of course. He got a ball played through to him, inside the penalty area, deep inside the penalty area, and he tried to control it with his first touch, and he tried to control it with his second touch, and he tried to control it with his third touch, and by the time he had his fourth touch, both him and the ball were in the back of the net. He was still trying to control it, but he'd run past the keeper with the ball, and it counted as a Mike Lawner goal for Newcastle Reserves. Um, no doubt a lovely man, and uh, I don't doubt that for one moment, but we've got to say in the history of Newcastle United number nines, if we entitle this the forgotten number nines, he is the one that is completely forgotten. Another flop, by the way, just for us finishing off, 
But this was a real high-profile flop with Stefan Gibash, who uh, signed for Newcastle. It's almost as much a flop as, as Mike Larnack, but but he was high-profile. He was France's World Cup winning centre-forward. Uh, in 1998, I was covering the World Cup finals for the Chronicle as well as as doing the job up here in Newcastle United, etc., etc. And I was going over to France for the World Cup finals. And Newcastle had just announced that they'd signed Givosh, who was signed to play alongside Alan Shearer. And he was France's centre forward, who were, they had a wonderful side, uh, Zinedine Zidane, etc. It's a wonderful, wonderful side. So I thought, this is going to be terrific. I'm going to watch Newcastle centre forward win the World Cup and prove to me that he's going to be the greatest centre forward ever. I did watch them win the World Cup. He didn't score one goal. He played centre forward and started every single game for France from day one through to the final and never scored one solitary single goal. Early on when I was over there, I was having a wine in a hotel bar, which is the sort of thing that I did just to be sociable, you understand. And just I, for work, just for work. Of course, of course. And I met this guy who was called Peter Story, who was, at the time was scouting for West Ham. Uh, he later became the chief executive at Portsmouth when they won the FA Cup under Harry Redknapp. And uh, he worked the French scene. And I'm talking, I said, so I said, hey, great. You, I said, give us the centre forward him. Um, for France, I said, you must have seen him a few times. He said, yeah, I've seen him a pile of times. I said, well, he's just saying for Newcastle, hasn't he? And I said, what do you think? And I had my pen poised. I thought, this is a terrific article for back home in Newcastle. You know, you've got a gem here in a second down on Shearer. And he said, uh, oh, yeah, he said he scored goals for Oxair and he, he won a few baubles while he was there. He said, but he's nowhere good enough for the... Uh, Premier League, he hasn't got a physical presence, he isn't quick. And, and I was just sinking to my knees. I saw a, not only a story disappearing out there, because I wasn't going to file a story saying, West Ham Scout says you've bought a wronging. Uh, so that was the end of the story. And the more I watched Givos play centre-forward for France, and can you imagine playing centre-forward with, at your shoulder, Zinedine Zidane, who could thread the ball through the eye of a needle and you didn't score one goal in a World Cup winning side. And that warned me what we were going to have at Newcastle. And uh, ironically, he scored a scruffy goal on his debut against Liverpool for Newcastle, but uh, that was the end of it. Never scored again. He'd been bought by Kenny Dalglish. And the minute Kenny Dalglish went, so did Gibos, because Wood Hullet had come in, peddled him, double quick which uh, we were probably appreciative of that but we didn't stay appreciative for too long when he started trying to get uh, Alan Shearer out the team and um, and big Duncan Ferguson and Rob Lee and everybody else but uh, he got rid of Givash which is which was good I mean just in finishing because the roundup there's loads of players played one-off games at centre-forward for Newcastle. I'm not going to go... But there was Steve Watson against Liverpool in the League Cup when he scored the 77th minute. Brilliant solo goal to win it. Ferdy was injured. Les Ferdinand. Steve Watson played centre-forward. Bob Stoko, manager of Sunderland, centre-half Newcastle, 55 Cup final. Christmas Day against Middlesbrough at Ayrson Park. Played centre-forward. Orthodox centre-forward. And scored. 
we lost, but he scored. Tommy Cassidy played centre-forward, John McGrath, Ollie Burton. And, of course, the one that played centre-forward an awful lot and was a centre-forward at Newcastle was Steve Howie, who was then converted to centre-half by Ozzy Ordealers and then polished into shape by Kevin Keegan and becoming England centre-half. But he was an orthodox and whisper average centre-forward who made 30 appearances for Newcastle as a centre-forward before he was converted centre-half. So the forgotten centre-forwards, you can stick Steve Howie in there if you wish. And yes, we're well aware that uh, Stefan Gavash was not number nine for Newcastle, but he was for France. So don't write in. We are well aware. Well, not just was he not number nine, he wasn't a number 10 or number 11 or a number 12, which is a sub. He wasn't good enough to be the sub either. But no, he was a twin centre-forward with Shearer, using the term very loosely. Um, just to sum it up then, what do you have to do as a number nine in Newcastle to be remembered as fondly as Melbourne, as Shearer, as Ferdinand? Well, the obvious thing is that you've got to score goals. That's the obvious thing. And I don't just mean an average number. You've got to score a pot full of goals um, because that is the job of the number nine. And it always concerns me when everybody wants to sit down and tell me what a good player a certain number nine is and then I look at his goal scoring record and he's never scored 10 goals in a season well sorry my centre forward has got to score goals because that is his job somebody else can do the link play etc etc so the first thing you've got to do is score goals the second thing you've got to do is entertain there you have it John thank you very much for popping in This has been Everything is Black and White Podcast.